Okay, welcome. We are here with uh, Dan Mersch. Hey. Dan is uh, one of our rising uh, EM residents. He's going into his second year uh, here. He just finished his internship year. He has all the battle scars to prove it. <laughs> mostly of the soul. But... <laughs> mostly, of the, mostly of having his soul extracted on eh, no, we're, we're... Monday shifts. Yeah, we're still good. We're yeah, still good. Yeah. But uh, that's just a rite of passage, just mm-hmm. learning how to endure all that. And we are continuing with our cardinal presentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dan uh, has chosen to tackle the mother of all cardinal presentations, chest pain. Yeah, we'll see how this goes. Yeah, no, I think it'll be fun. I think it'll be fun. So um, what were your references? How would you get your uh, chest pain uh, cardinal presentation thing together? So we actually had a discussion on one of our cases where you said, you know, I can always tell the podcast learners. <laughs> and, and you know, we, we had talked about a case, and I said, um, file not found yeah. with, with, uh, <laughs> with another situation. Right. And so I took that, and I was like, you know, I really need to go back to the, the primary stuff. I need to go back to Rosen's and Tintinale yeah. and the core stuff. And yeah. so with this particular situation, what I did was I really went back to Tintinale and just took out all the, the core concepts. Um, I used the cl- uh, clerkship directors and emergency medicine okay. outline, plugged that information into it, and then I really liked... Steve Carroll's episode on EM Basic nice. on chest pain. Mm-hmm. He did uh, just a really simple simple mnemonic of PETMAC for the six deadly causes of chest pain, and I've loved that. I've, I've helped to teach that to med students, and I've used it for my own clinical practice, so I wanted to make sure we included that as well. Very cool. I, so what we'll do is um, we'll put that link on the, on the podcast website so everybody can follow that uh, because uh, EM Basic is a great resource. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and... Um, we want everybody to sort of tap into all these. One of the things about, uh, you know, using blogs and podcasts as part of your education is that you want to make it uh, a habit to follow the thread of where these things originate, right? So um, it is great to get a digested version of Rosen or Rosen Alley, as mm-hmm. they say, right. uh, as the foamcasters say. Um but eventually you want to read the original chapter yourself, and yeah. it does work out pretty well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the intervention my wife had last night with me uh, definitely proved that point. <laughs> She's like, Dan, you can't just get everyone else's version on this. You have to go back to the actual text. Right, right. A little old school, but very true. Yes. Very true. Yes. So give me a couple of cases. Let's. Why don't you give me two chest pain cases, sort of prototypical, sure. that um, we'll keep in our mind as we sort of go through the approach to this cardinal presentation. Okay. First we have Joe. He's a 50-year-old male, presents to the emergency department by ambulance, complaining of first-time-ever severe chest pain. It just started while he was running on the treadmill. Okay. He immediately called 911 and came to the emergency department. His vital signs at that time were a blood pressure of 140 over 90, a pulse of 80, a respiratory rate of 24, a temperature of 98.3 Fahrenheit, and an O2 saturation of 98%. Okay, so the thumbnail on that is 50-year-old uh, gent who is having exercise-induced chest pain. Right. Vital signs look a little look good, if, if not a little hypertense. All right, that's one type of case. So the second case would be Mary, a 69-year-old female who presents to the emergency department via triage. She was ambulatory at the time, complaining of worsening shortness of breath, chest, and epigastric pain for about 24 hours. She has had both nausea and vomiting, weakness and fatigue, and she says she feels terrible. Her mm-hmm. vital signs are the same, 140 over 90, pulse uh-huh. of 80, respiratory rate of 24, temp of 98.3, and O2 saturation of 98%. All right, I like that. Two, two folks, different ages, different sexes, same vital signs, similar overall complaint, mm-hmm. chest pain being, being the key. Uh, looks like Mary is uh, trying to get two parts of her torso involved, abdominal pain, epigastric right. pain, nausea, vomiting, weakness, fatigue, feeling horrible. Right. Cool. So... Right off the bat, that goes to show you um, a lot of things will show up in the ED, uh, and it'll be labeled as chest pain, and if we're only that simple, right? Right, There's right. so much the complexity that goes with Absolutely. these. Absolutely. So I know there was, a, there was a case that some of the MRAP people had mentioned where a patient had a chief complaint of ear pain. It was a STEMI. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, they, they, the, what, the, uh, you asked me before, like, what, what chest pain, you know, uh, case fooled you? And it generally is that you, a patient has chest pain, 
but the problem is from some other compartment, right? Okay. It's like, you know, perf viscous or what have you, and it can go the other way, uh-huh. you know? Like, I have my, I have my jaw, I think I have a toothache. You're like, well, we should just check an EKG, uh-huh. STEMI, right? Yeah. All right, so a little on the epidemiology. So about 5% of emergency medicine visits are caused by chest pain. Okay. It amounts to about 5 million visits per year. Okay. And I think something important for any emergency provider or someone who's thinking about going into emergency medicine is that we are essentially the chest painologist. That's, that's Could our... Could be better said, I think. Yeah. That is our jam. The primary care doctors, they send their chest pains to us. Even the cardiologists will send their acute chest pains to us. Very true, very true. And so we need to be very well-versed, and we can't just have a CAN protocol where we say, it's a chest pain, just admit them, let's move on. We can't do that because if we're going to miss something, someone's going to get hurt. Right, it's not so simple. I always like to say that you could admit 100% of your chest pain patients. By definition, you will still miss MIs because some MIs present with shortness of breath. So you really do have to be expert with this. I completely agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we love to, uh, uh, if, if I get hit on the head somewhere and I wake up, uh, the first thing I'll say is check my ABCs. Mm-hmm. It's burned into our souls. So mm-hmm. what are the ABCs? What's the initial go at a chest pain patient? So you want to walk into the room and check their airway, breathing, and circulation. Okay. Uh, if they're able to talk, that reasonably clears their airway. Right. Um, if they are having symmetric chest rise, um, good breath sounds, right. you've cleared their breathing. And if they have good peripheral pulses and central pulses, you've cleared the circulation component. Right, exactly. That's and a- you can actually visually see if they're perfusing as well. If they right. look pale, sweaty, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Definitely get a C uh, just uh, as soon as you walk in the room. Right. I would also consider uh, mental status to somewhat be sure. one of my vital signs. And so if they're altered, I would also be asking for help. Right, whether that's a, uh, a, a brain circulation issue. I agree. All right, well, you can't talk about chest pain unless you start talking about EKGs. EKGs. <laughs> yep. Righto. We get EKGs on every, everything, mm-hmm. um, anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, obviously getting them on the chest pain patient is, shall I say, obvious. Um, what other symptoms would you get an EKG on, just to throw something out there? If someone was older and had abdominal pain sure. or fatigue, right? Um, if they said, man, I just feel terrible. Shortness of breath. Yep. Yeah, right. And those, all those types of things, I would still be thinking EKG. Yeah. Now, again, if they're like 20 years old, you know, that's less on my mind, but... If you're older, my threshold to get an EKG rapidly approaches the floor. <laughs> right, right, right. So there's some inverse ratio there. Uh, your age, you know, 100 minus your age equals the uh, uh, likelihood of not getting an EKG. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree completely on that. And um, I, folks who push back on getting EKGs just need to get comfortable with reading EKGs so that if it's uh, – you know, the slight variant or what have you, you don't say, oh my gosh, I'm not sure what to do with this EKG. Get the EKG. I mean, you're looking for STEMIs, you're looking for saves when mm-hmm. you're doing that. I think in the emergency department, if you think about getting an EKG, you should stop right there and order the <laughs> right. EKG. Don't think about it. Just right. do it. Exactly. So, uh, boy, we could spend hours on the EKG, but, you know, what's the quick look? Because especially think of it in terms of a med student or an EM1, you know, starting out. What, what's the quick look that they're looking for there? So anyone who has chest pain in the emergency department, you, there's an elephant in the room or possibly on their chest, depending on how you look at it, right. um, which is myocardial infarction. Right. You have to rule that out, and you have to rule it out really well. Mm-hmm. That is your job. Mm-hmm. So... What we typically would look for would be ST segment elevation of greater than one millimeter in two contiguous leads. That's right. that's the line you'll always hear. Right. Um, and we can we can talk about contiguous leads maybe another time. Mm-hmm. And then we talk about reciprocal changes where if you have the inferior leads showing ST segment elevations, you want to also look for the uh, either the lateral um, the lateral leads to show ST depressions uh, or some kind of reciprocal change. Right. And having those reciprocal changes is indicative in MI, and then not having them helps you with other conditions, pericarditis or what have you, which uh, uh, um, also show, uh, what else is the other thing? Aneurysms, ventricular aneurysms, you'll Mm -hmm. often lack that reciprocal change. So um, 
you're looking for that, you know, slam, bam, STEMI activation. Right. Uh, there's nice references out there on the web. I carry one around on my phone of, uh, you know, all the alternative, the STEMI alternatives that don't always show up as two continuous leads, mm -hmm. uh, SD segment elevation. Definitely will save those for another day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, uh, and uh, Dr. Smith's ECG blog is also a great place for other people to go. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well. Take a tip from some some very bright people like Dr. Smith and Amama too, who are probably no more about EKGs uh, than anybody, and yeah. they're still studying EKGs. Yeah. Makes you think. You're Absolutely. just going to always be at that. Right. I think another thing to look for on the EKG for ischemic changes, maybe not STEMI per se, but T-wave inversions, ST depressions, um, always get serial EKGs. Uh, if you're going to get a troponin, you should be getting an EKG. If you're getting an EKG, think about getting the troponin. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, I think that should be part of your mindset. Other conditions that'll show up? So we always talk about pulmonary embolism. Mm -hmm. uh, sinus tech is the most common EKG abnormality, whereas mm -hmm. sinus rhythm is the most common uh, presentation of PE. Okay. You always talk about S1, Q3, T3. I think about, what, 20% of PEs actually have that? Something yeah, very small. Maybe even less than that, closer to 15 or so. Yeah. You like to look at it. It makes for good chatter. If you think about all your criteria, your your wells, your whatnot, your, your perk, none of them have EKG changes as a real discriminator. Right, so right. it's, um, it's, important to look at and sort of absorb what's going on in the EKG and sort of develop your differential. For, for a PE, you're not absolutely going to create a, uh, a situation where you're going to go, oh, this guy's a PE, right. S1, Q3, T3. Right. <laughs> and so another thing, we, we don't really need to talk about um, signs of right heart strain as much in, in PE, is that, is that correct? Yeah, you'll, 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 when you have the hemodynamics, you'll definitely see it. Okay, yeah, so you'll yeah. see it in the vital signs. You don't need yeah. to see it in the EKG. That's where the S1Q3T3 kind of originates from. Right, right. right. Okay. Uh, some other things you want to be looking for would be a pericardial effusion. So mm -hmm. if you have a, you know, a heart sitting in a big bag of fluid and it's beating back and forth to and from the EKG leads, that's going to change your amplitude. And so your QRS complex is going to be high, low, high, low, high, uh, low. And so that can sometimes give you information that you wouldn't have uh, already known. Then you just throw down the ultrasound probe and see a big pericardial effusion or even worse, uh, tamponade. Right, right. Uh, almost always on the boards too, by the way. So other things that we, we can look for is uh, bradycardia, uh, looking for heart blocks. A lot of time when you have someone who has acute shortness of breath and chest pain, uh, what you can sometimes see would be a uh, second or third degree heart block causing a bradycardia, uh, which is obviously something that needs immediate intervention. You need to throw the pads on that patient. You need to um, you know, get information. You need to start your resuscitation immediately. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think sinus bradycardia tells you when you have it in the setting of chest pain? And I'm not talking about like 59 on the heart rate, but like, you know, like a 50 or a 48. It looks, you know, it looks okay, mm -hmm. but it's a sinus brady. So I'd be thinking about uh, either like a, some kind of coronary event affecting the AV node or right. the conduction or, system in general. Yeah, so sometimes chest pain and inferior wall MIs result in a lot of vagal tone. Okay. And though you may not recognize the ischemic pattern there, somebody who, let's say, is having anginal you know, pains, okay. not actually infarcting, will just have a sinus bradycardia as a part of that. So it's something to think about. Is it someone who would also have like abdominal pain and vomiting? Could be, yeah. Diaphragmatic so, irritation? Right. That's when somebody comes in with the epigastric pain that turns out to be the MI. In retrospect, the vagal tone that they present it with and the sort of like, oh, it hurts down here phenomena um, are all related to that inferior wall. Mm. So, okay. Interesting. Okay. So you're a pet mac fan. I love it. Oh, <laughs> oh, I love it. All right. So let's let's chunk it out using Pet Mac. All right. So again, this is Steve Carroll that came up with this from EM Basic. And again, I would encourage everyone out there to look at his podcast. Nice. And we're going to put this out on a, uh, we'll put this, all the show notes out there on the, on the blog. So it's right. awesome. And uh, so what I did was I took his uh, outline and then applied all the Tintinelli information to it. So Pet Mac is P-E-T-M-A-C. All right. So the P is pulmonary embolism. Okay. The E is esophageal rupture. T is tension pneumothorax. 
M is myocardial infarction. Uh-huh. A is aortic dissection and aneurysm. And uh, C is cardiac tamponade. All right, so PETMAC. Now, PETMAC is basically uh, chest pains that will wreck your day. Yes. Right? So these, we're not talking about like, well, pneumonia can have chest pain or this can have chest pain or, mm-hmm. you know. These are chest pains that are going to wreck your day. Right. Wreck the patient's day too, I might add. Yes, yes. But um, it's not – this is the part that like you're talking – this is not flipping burgers, right? These are where like you look at your scrubs that say emergency medicine. You're like, oh, yeah, I'm getting paid for this. Right, right. <laughs> this is our job. All right, PETMAC, PE, esophageal rupture, tension pneumo, MI, aortic dissection and badness and cardiac tamponade. Yep, absolutely. Let's start at the top. All right, so pulmonary embolism, this can present with obviously chest pain, but also uh, shortness of breath. You can have a pleuritic component to your chest pain as the infarcting lung is irritating the pleura. You can have lightheadedness. Rarely, you can sometimes have syncope, seizure, altered mental status. And uh, about 20% of the time, you can actually have hemoptysis. Mm. Um, so the syncope, seizure, altered mental status is usually a pretty terrible PE. Right. And you're going to see a lot of changed vital signs on right. those cases. Right. That's definitely going to wreck your day. So for physical exam, uh, there's no auscultory findings for PE. I think sometimes med students can get confused if they're looking for rails, wheezing, bronchi, right. whatever they might be trying to listen for, or, or even uh, absence of breath sounds. But that is not true in PE. Mm-hmm. There are no real um, auscultory findings for it. Mm-hmm. We always use uh, Wells criteria and PERC right. when we're talking about PE. So you can start out with Wells criteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is uh, signs or symptoms of DVT. Pulmonary embolism being the number one diagnosis, heart rate greater than 100, Mm -hmm. three days of immobilization or recent surgery, a history of PE or DVT, hemoptysis, and cancer. Um, And if you just use MD-Calc or whatever your your clinical calculation app might be, it'll give you uh, either low, moderate, or high probability. Mm -hmm. Uh, If it's low probability, your next step could be the PERC uh, rule. So this mm-hmm. is the PE rule out criteria. Age greater than 50, heart rate greater than 100, O2 sat less than 95%, a history of venous thromboembolism, trauma or surgery in the previous four weeks, hemoptysis, exogenous estrogen, mm-hmm. and unilateral leg swelling. If you have any of those things, you cannot be perked out. Right. And you, you, need to move, you need to do more right. if any of those things are true. So I love that phrase, perk out. So I... Um, now, I think a lot of people are going the other way. They're basically saying, can I perk out this patient right off the bat? And that makes life a lot easier. And then if I can't, then I'm starting to add in wells, seeing if it's high risk, whether I want to do a D-dimer, which I'm sure you're going to talk about next, mm-hmm. or whether I want to go right to an image, or um, is, it, is it intermediate risk where I'll use the D-dimer and, mm-hmm. you know. So um, definitely see if you can perk out your patient because very quickly – you can get your diagnosis momentum going in the right direction. And the worst thing is to say, like, wow, I really am convinced this patient has a PE and ignore the fact that the perk score is, like, you know, not going down that way. And mm-hmm. you really – you might want to hang on to that diagnosis a little longer, but you definitely want to start saying, like, all right, I could be wrong. Okay. okay. <laughs> Especially when the ETMAC is still remaining to mm-hmm. be con- considered, right? Right, right. right. So if your patient has a moderate uh, risk, then you can consider the D-dimer. Nice, right. Um, so that's where you can get your one or a zero. If it's greater than 500 or whatever your institution's uh, ma- uh, cutoff is, right. then you can say, okay, well, their risk of DV- or, uh, PE is much higher. Therefore, I need to do some kind of imaging. Right. And, and, so that- and a lot of people talk about using an age-adjusted not really written into the books yet, but probably down the pipe where, mm-hmm. you know, a 75-year-old, we're not going to scan them at 510. We'll wait for their D-dimer to get above 750. Right. You know, but right. that's down the road. Right. Uh, so the other thing is if you have a high-risk PE, then you're just going to go straight to the right. CT angiogram, or you may even jump straight to treatment if you just feel that this is right. such a high priority. Even if the CT is negative, you're still going to treat skip the CT. Right, right. So if you're going to treat regardless of the test, don't do the test. Right. So I think that's uh, something important to, to do. In terms of other testing other than the D-dimer, we also want to do a troponin. Sometimes sure. these patients, I mean, obviously you want to rule out uh, an MI as well, but if they have a troponin elevation and they have a diagnosed PE, now you're really concerned that this is beginning to obstruct 
uh, flow to mm-hmm. the left side of the heart. Right. And if that's the case, you need to start thinking about maybe thrombolysing this patient. Exactly. Um, the CTA chest, the, the CTA angiogram, mm-hmm. that's uh, obviously something you want to do if the D-dimer is positive or right. if you're 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 thinking this really could be it. If you if, if they have a contrib- um, indication to CTA such as uh, a dye allergy or some other problem, you could consider a VQ scan just re- realize that the sensitivity of VQ scans is... Okay. Yeah, other clever approaches is that you can, uh, if you one of your positives is a swollen leg and you find a DVT and you think you have a PE, then you don't even need to do the CT scan, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're saying like, well, I got the DVT and I got the PE symptomatology and moderate to high risk. Then right. go ahead and treat. Right. Uh, you can also do a bedside echo. So us in emergency medicine, obviously ultrasound right, has become our best kidding. friend. It's our, our third appendage. Right. Um, so I think- And great for the really sick patient, right? Who right. you're thinking about TPA. Right. Right. So you come in and got an arrest, you're slapping the ultrasound on, you're looking for two things. So you're going to look for a dilated right atrium. Nice. So, And then you would also look for uh, depressed myocardial motion. Is that correct? Nice, yes. Okay. Right. I was kind of I think it's called McConnell sign, right, where the where you know you, you don't see full contraction going. Yeah, it's, uh, like pump, it's pumping against some kind of resistance. Exactly. You can see D-ing out of the right ventricle. Right, the you, D sign, yeah, or the D, whatever. Is it D sign? D something. Yeah. <laughs> I'm no ultrasound whiz. I throw the ultrasound on there and um, – and then once I put the probe in the right direction, <clears throat> I look at it again. Mm-hmm. And uh, but this has helped me a couple of times with patients who are like, "Why is this patient so super duper sick?" You yeah, know? I actually had a patient in the ICU who was a, a pregnant patient who had a very large PE. She had S1Q3T3. Mm-hmm. She had Ding of the right ventricle. I'm sorry, left ventricle. The, the left ventricle is the one that actually D's out, not the right. Right. Um, and so when I was discussing with her, you know, she's like, why am I in the ICU? Why am I getting all this, you know, stuff? And I put the ultrasound probe on her heart and showed her the Ding out. And I cleaned off the probe and I put it on my chest. And I showed oh, cool. her, this is what it's supposed to look like. Right. It's supposed to be nice and circular like this. And yours isn't. And so that was actually a nice uh, episode of, Fantastic. you know, educating the patient. Yeah, that's, that's inspired. I love that. Yeah, she was, she was a good case. Uh, so moving on, we have treatment. Now, if you have a super, super sick patient, mm-hmm. you got a blood pressure less, th- a, a systolic blood pressure less than 90, right? and super sick patient, you really need to consider TPA. Yeah. That, that is super important. That's be right. your first thought when you're talking about uh, treating a PE. Right. Now, if they are stable and you're thinking this is more subsegmental or the CT shows it's subsegmental, they have no perturbations of their vital signs, right. you could even consider discharging that patient. Now, it's a bold move. It's a bold move. Bold move. But the new oral anticoagulants, yes. the 10As and the direct thrombin inhibitors, right. there is some new coming evidence that you can discharge those patients on oral medications right. and have them follow up with either a hematologist or a primary care. Yeah. So there uh, is a whole rubric on doing that. You've got to understand a little bit about renal function, dose, uh, know a lot about their follow-up. But that is definitely coming down the pike for EM physician as right. the selected group of outpatient management of yeah. Somebody with a pulmonary embolism. <clears throat> so I think the. Gulp. <laughs> I think the. I think the primary thing that new learners need to know is that most of your PEs will be admitted, and right. most of them will go on to some kind of anticoagulant like heparin. Yes. Or possibly Lovenox. Right. And that is the majority of the patients that you'll right. encounter. Mm-hmm. That's well said, I think. Now, as far as disposition is concerned, we talked a little bit about the, the very small select group that could possibly be discharged home, but the majority are going to be admitted. And if you have a very unstable patient, you've got um, you know, an elevated heart rate, you mm-hmm. have uh, hypoxia, you have tachypnea, um, you've got you know, an elevated troponin, you're thinking about TPA, all that sort of stuff, you're thinking more ICU. Right. And if the patient ends up being a candidate for thrombectomy, then you want to think about OR and IR. Exactly. All right. So, so so let's just reiterate. So not a lot of physical findings in the lung when you have a PE. A whole heck of a lot of suggestive histories. You'll get your gestalt, but you're going to use some sort of criteria, PERC, Geneva, Wells, what have you, to start a risk stratify, judicious use of blood tests, CT imaging, bedside ultra, ultrasound for the hero moves on the super sick patients, and heparin, low molecular weight heparin, and soon enough, 
maybe you know novel oral anticoagulants as an outpatient. Right. I think one thing we we kind of glossed over for new learners, a DVT is a hot, swollen, purple leg. Right. And that we need to make sure that we include that. If you see that, you need to really have your... Right. That that uh, gets your spidey senses <laughs> yes. tingling. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, that's the P of PetMac. It was one, that's one of the biggest. So we're that's gonna the kinda, biggest. Yeah. We're going yeah. to keep moving here. Oh, gonna, yeah. No, we spent a lot of time just trolling through the ED looking for the P in PetMac. Yeah. All right. So esophageal rupture is relatively rare. I've only ever seen maybe... Two of these, actually. Mm, okay. Um, you used to you usually have a history of some kind of instrumentation. If that's you were scoped recently, you have a stent for some kind of esophageal cancer or other mm-hmm. issue. If you've had dilations of esophageal strictures, mm-hmm. maybe banding for varices, or you recently had some kind of OR correction. Maybe you had a Mallory Weiss tear or repair or something like that. But you had something was done by a person to your esophagus. Right. You could also have it with forceful emesis. And it does get worse with swallowing, um, and sometimes you could see hematemesis or shortness of breath with right. this. That would be a borehave, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the physical exam findings, you're going to see an acute abdomen because mm-hmm. you essentially have a perfect viscous. You're going to look at hypotension because they're likely going to be septic, uh, or they're going to be volume depleted because they're essentially bleeding out from in the inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to probably see fever because, again, sepsis, mm-hmm. uh, tachycardic, tachypneic, uh, and sometimes you can see subcutaneous emphysema of the neck, mm-hmm. which is a very specific sign for this particular problem uh, in our pet Mac. So if you see sub-Q air, you you have a very big problem on your hands. Right. Typically, uh, uh, their chest pain, they get the obligatory chest x-ray. Everybody's looking at the cardiac silhouette for a little pneumomediastinum. And uh, you, your eyes shift up, and mm-hmm. you see tracking along the neck, uh, some sub-Q emphysema, and then, then you, you go like, whoa, whoa, you know, like <laughs> I need to do something about this. Uh-huh. Other thing I would throw out there is that the physical exam description that you that you put together um, does not need to occur all together. Right. right? A lot of folks would go, you know, I don't know what to tell you, but it hurts when I swallow and my chest is killing me. Mm-hmm. And uh, you really need to have that good index of suspicion uh, on, uh, on on cases like this. And then use the history like, oh, I had a stent. Okay, well, that's a no-brainer. Well, I just vomited very violently. Oh, okay, now we're getting towards the esophagus. Mm-hmm. And so one other thing that might be a board question is Hammond's sign. Oh, which sure. Is Hammond's the, crunch. Right. So the crunch, that's pericardial air. Um, so when you when the heart's beating, it touches and releases from the uh, pericardium, causing a, a, a crunching sort of sound. Mm-hmm. And so when you listen to the heart and you hear that crunch that goes along with the heartbeats, that's Hammond's sign. Right. You usually put the patient in a left lateral decube, flip, so you flip the heart over so it's really rubbing well and it really uh, elicits a, a fairly loud crunch. You'll hear it occasionally if somebody's just sitting up. But lots of times you really, if when, when you get that x-ray with the, the, the air, go back and find the Hammond's crunch you missed <laughs> yeah, on the first go round. <laughs> right, that's usually how that would go. Yeah. Uh, so as far as testing is concerned, you talked about the chest x-ray being sure. the first up. Uh, you can also look at uh, CT for both the chest and the neck. Sure. Um, endoscopy is high up there. Now, something I thought was kind of interesting was that if you looked at a pleural fluid, I don't know why you would do a thoracentesis on someone this sick in the emergency department. But okay. it was something that Tintinelli talked about, and All you right. would look for amylase. Okay. So there if there's go. spit in the chest, right. that's a problem. In Philly, we're <laughs> looking for a cheesesteak yeah. in the plural fluid. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then we're like, that's bad news. Yeah. Uh, so most of these patients will go directly to surgery. Uh, some may get additional endoscopy to confirm the diagnosis. Right. And then you also you want to give antibiotics to cover for oral flora. And that's a big key. In other words, you really, like, that's your move, right? Mm-hmm. You're not going to do the surgery. You know, you know, you're doing the diagnostics, but you want to hit those antibiotics because uh, the mediastinum does not like what's in the esophagus, <laughs> right, right? It's right. really bad. Yeah, yeah. So you want to make sure you hit the okay. oral Dispo floor. is uh, oro, or, OR or the unit, right? Yep, yep. So these people are sick. So that's the, that's the E. You won't see a ton of those. When you do, they will they will really impress you. Mm-hmm. Um, how about T? Tension pneumo. All right, so tension pneumothorax, this is usually a result of trauma. Mm-hmm. So you have air between the lung and the pleural lining that is now getting to such a high pressure that it is pushing on the uh, either the IVC or some inflow tract to the right heart. And so now you are cutting off uh, blood flow to the heart, causing shock. Mm-hmm. 
And so this is one of the few causes of obstructive shock, along with PE, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we need to make sure we are looking for. Uh, look out for tall, thin males, and they are you almost always dyspneic of some kind. Right. Uh, you're going to look for decreased breath sounds along with jugular venous distension. And then as far as testing is concerned, everyone's probably going to get a chest x-ray. However, us in ultrasound, we're getting more and more. Yeah, so uh, real quick, you're going to throw that on What are you looking for in that bedside ultrasound? So I'm going to look for lung sliding. So that's kind of like the ants marching or the comet tails right. or however you want to call that shimmer of the pleural lining uh, rubbing with the pulmonary line, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the lung sliding. Uh, you can also look for... The lung sliding tells you what? That the lung is touching the pleura. Life's good. So everything's right. okay. That's that's good. Right. Bueno. Uh, no bueno would be if you didn't see that. If you didn't right. see the shimmer or the comet tails or the right. ants marching or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and then there's also something called the seashore sign where if you put right. it on M mode through uh, an area where you would su- you, su- you should be seeing that shimmer, uh, you would see kind of like waves crashing on the beach. Right. And if you see just co- all everything is just waves there's no beach, right. that would be an indication that there is a very severe problem in this patient. Right, so that's the well. echo created of going back and forth between nothing. Right. Yeah, and so, um, yeah, uh, that is fairly telltale. Right. So you could also do a CT scan on some of these patients for smaller pneumos, uh, but mostly you should be putting an ultrasound probe in all of these patients. Yeah. Uh, so the treatment, you're going to do a needle thoracostomy uh, or chest tube uh, or both. So if the patient is critically ill, if they're arresting, if there's no pulse and you've got ACLS going on, you need to do a needle thoracostomy. I have done three of these so far during intern year, so I think that's a pretty nice. interesting intern year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Two of them were the same you, guy, though. You've lived well, my friend. <laughs> um, where did you do them? What site? Uh, so I always did the uh, midclavicular second intercostal space because uh, that's the classic teaching. There's right. some information that's coming out that's saying it may change in the future. However, right. for right now, I think that's the best. And I think we need to make sure that we have a long enough needle. There's your problem. To make sure that we get all the way through. Right. Um, so you get some big boys in the emergency department. Getting down to that space can be pretty difficult at the second intercostal space. Mm-hmm. So what I say is, and this is what everybody's talking about, if you look in the body habitus, you say, like, no problem, I'll get there, go second intercostal space. If the body habitus is, is an issue, then go where you would put in a chest tube, right? No big deal. Right, right. And I think that's what the emerging literature is, yeah. is talking about. Um, so just make sure that you have a long needle. Uh, this can either be an angiocath that you typically would use to do your ultrasound guided lines mm-hmm. or a, um, a, ne- a needle and catheter you would usually do a pericardiocentesis so mm-hmm. sometimes it can be as large as a 12 gauge right. uh, needle which is what I've had to use on yeah. one of my patients. And those catheters, the angiocaths, will often kink off. So you get a little window where they're functional but lots of times they'll kink off. How do you know when you've finished your decompression? The bubbles stop coming out. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, Have you ever made popcorn and you're like, is it done? And yeah, yeah, three yeah. more come, you're uh-huh. like, oh, son of a gun. So you kind of give it a little one potato, two potato, and see. But okay. when the rush is over, in theory, the tension is taken care of. So Okay. okay. You don't need to get every last morsel of air out okay. of there. Okay. Because the chest tube is coming. Right, 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 right. right, yeah. right. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, so we talked about uh, what we do about it, and then these patients are all going to get either admitted or go to the ICU or possibly even to the OR. Oh, show. That's right. All right. So the big one. MI. All right, so myocardial infarction. This one uh, is, is going to take the cake, obviously, for your cognitive load in terms of chest pains in the ER. Uh, you're going to basically look for four things on history. Okay. So that's going to be radiation anywhere. Nice. It's going to be vomiting, not necessarily nausea, as Amamatu keeps talking about. Right. Uh, it's going to be dyspnea with exertion, so not just shortness of breath. But shortness of breath with exertion. Right. Is it worse when you go upstairs? Is it worse when you do something? And then uh, the last one was uh, diaphoresis. So if they're sweating, you're sweating, as Dr. Minzak right, always likes to say. Right, right, right. So uh, radiation, dyspnea on exertion, not just sort of like well, a little short of breath, and vomiting, and then sweaty patient, sweaty yeah. doctor. Right, gotcha. right. You can also see syncope and palpitations with mm-hmm. this, and those are usually really bad signs. Mm-hmm. Yes, so with physical exam, you're going to look for, again, just the overall look of the patient. Do they look sick? Do they look pale? Do they look like they're in some kind of shock? Do they have cool skin? Uh, if you hear a new murmur, you might be really concerned that maybe they ruptured a papillary muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and then you're going to look for the, just the vital sign abnormalities. Mm-hmm. Other than that, there really aren't too many physical exam findings for a heart attack. Exactly. Uh, now, something we like here is the heart score. Sure. Big fan of the heart score. So heart score is the history, the EKG, patient's age, and risk factors, and the troponin value. Right. And so again, this is any kind of med calc or MD calc or whatever you want to sure. use for this. Now, I personally use the four things in the history that we just talked about as how I look at the history. If they have zero of those things, I say that they are low risk on history component of that particular part of the heart score. If they have one, I say it's moderate. If they have two, it's moderate. Any right. more than two, I say they're high. Right. So that's kind of how I personally do it. Right. Um, I don't know if you have uh, maybe a little more. Yeah, so the heart score was designed to allow for all of us to, um, you know, show our, our, our scope and breadth of history taking. Mm-hmm. And so um, – uh, if you feel like it's worrisome, it's worrisome, you know, right. and how you triangulate that um, is up to you and based on your experience. But for the most part, I think everyone is doing what you're doing, which is to say ischemic sounding pain, mm-hmm. right? Chest pain is a concern. Set that aside. Does it sound like ischemic chest pain? Right. right? Has it been a one solid week of chest pain doesn't sound ischemic mm-hmm. compared to 20 minutes of a you know worsening crescendo type of pattern. So I think you're right. And I think putting it together the way you did is nice because then you can say when you have that weird sort of like I'm in between on this patient, you go like, no, I, I promised myself. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's going to be radiation, dyspion exertion, diaphoresis, you know, yeah, yeah. is, is, is yeah. the worst. So. so I'll do a study on it and I'll let you know. Okay, great. <laughs> Well, now, heart score is a little – that the one thing about heart is it's a little heavily weighted towards the troponin, mm-hmm. right? So that's the one thing that I think is really interesting about heart is that um, somebody would say to you, a patient has a positive troponin. Do you think they might be having an MI? You're like, yes. And so when you do the H-E-A-R, then you're just yeah. waiting for that troponin to come. <laughs> right, and right, right. And then, you know, so – but it does work out well, study supported, and – um, it's a good way to good way to go, especially for folks folks who are just starting out. Yeah, and it's really good for charting too. I think uh, Dr. Verrier would actually uh, segment out the H was this number, the A, the E was this number, the A was this number. Oh, nice! And, and he'll actually with commas in between section it out, and then the troponin's always P for pending. Okay. And so that's how he'll segment it out. Oh, nice. I actually found that kind of nice. Good technique. Um, if I was any good at charting, I would do that. <laughs> um, so again, age, older people have worse outcomes, and they're more likely to have heart attacks. Risk factors, we're still including them for now, but possibly on their way out, looking at things like obesity, smoking, uh, previous MI, uh, high cholesterol, hypertension, diabetes, all those types of things. Mm-hmm. And then the troponin, like you said, heavily weighted. Mm-hmm. As far as treatment is, cons- is is considered here in the United States, we like to do uh, percutaneous coronary intervention. And so that's PCI. Mm-hmm. That's going to the cath lab. Right. So cath lab is is by far the number one thing we want to do. We want to make sure that our door-to-balloon times are as low as physically possible. Mm-hmm. So if the EMS system sends us a, a STEMI on EKG from, from the, the back of the bus, then they could probably even just skip the ER altogether mm-hmm. straight to cath. So that's just one thing we really want to make sure we're, right. we're on top of. Make sure these patients get their aspirin. Uh, if the cardiology folks say give them heparin in preparation for cath lab, that's fine too, though heparin itself has not been shown to be very helpful in MI. Right. And then beta blockers, again, that has to be within the first 24 hours, so that's up to you if you want to be yeah, on that. Meh. Yeah, Yeah, and then nitrates can sometimes at least help with pain. Exactly. If they have an inferior or, or a, uh, a right-sided MI, be very careful of that because, again, they're preload dependent, so you right. don't want to knock out their preload. And, so get, and then the other thing is get comfortable with the um, – uh, the platelet uh, issues that mm. uh, the platelet drugs that you're going to be giving, you know, some of them uh, are very dependent upon your cardiologist mm-hmm. prior stroke history as to which ones they choose. Probably a little bit more than we want to include here, but that that throw that in the mix. Okay, okay. Uh, so again, disposition, cath lab versus admit versus ICU, and we didn't really talk about STEMI versus NSTEMI versus stable angina. Um, STEMI is the EKG changes we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, NSTEMI is you don't have diagnostic EKG changes for a STEMI, but you'd have a positive troponin. And then anginas, you have neither, mm-hmm. but you have the chest pain. Mm-hmm. So just be aware of those uh, definitions when you're when you're talking about it. All right, so we're going to A. The aorta. All right, so the aorta. Just is, sits there. 
most Im- staring at you. <laughs> most important waiting pipe. to cause trouble. <laughs> so no matter what happens to the aorta, any changes are bad. That's bad. Nothing good happens to the aorta. So aortic dissection and aneurysm. Uh, the best way I can remember this for dissection uh, was what MRAP talked about. I think it was Anand Swaminathan who mentioned this. Uh, was dissection is chest pain and Exactly. So it's chest pain and a stro- feature, right. right? So stroke-like symptoms, tearing back pain, right. uh, pulse deficit in an arm, right. pulse deficit in a leg, right. acute renal failure, um, chest pain of sudden pain. onset of, right. s- of sudden onset with severity, those types of things. Right. Yeah. So I think that's something important to to recognize. Uh, typically, it'll be sharp or tearing. Um, and it'll be associated with the things that, that we mentioned. Sometimes it can be associated with syncope. Um, as far as physical exam, we're looking at most of these patients will probably have hypertension. Correct. So 49% of them will, in fact, have some form of hypertension. Uh, some of them will actually have a diastolic murmur. So diastolic murmurs are always bad, no matter how you slice it. Right. Uh, hypotension, uh, 20% will have hypotension. And then... Um, some will have an asymmetric peripheral pulse, and that's only about 15% of patients, so always make sure you're checking pulses. Get a bilateral blood right. pressure on the, on the arms. The, the, the lesion has to be just so to hit you know, one, the right side versus the left, right. you know, so it doesn't always work out. And sometimes it can be transient. Right. Uh, some of these patients can also have dysphagia, horse, hoarseness, or uh, Horner syndrome mm-hmm. because, again, you're talking about the arch of the aorta, right. which is interacting with the esophagus. Mm-hmm as well as the um, sympathetic um, chain. chain. Yeah, thank you. Um, if their systolic blood pressure between arms is greater than 20 millimeters of mercury, that's when 20 is the number you're looking for mm-hmm. for the bilateral blood pressure is at least a difference. The diagnostic testing you want to do for this is a CTA chest, and you want to tell your radiologist we're looking for dissection because then they're going to time the dye to specifically look for that. Right. Uh, so that is the diagnostic test of choice, and again, you're sending the patient who has a critical problem to another place outside the department. So either you're going with them or you're sending someone who knows what they're doing with that patient because mm-hmm. they have a very high probability of bad Or you're things. bringing a TEE down to where you are. I, the other approach, I think, is a good way to go. Okay. Uh, you can also look at D-dimer, uh, which will often be very highly elevated, like 8,000 mm-hmm. in these patients. Um, it could be higher or lower than that. Obviously, it's just a number I picked mm-hmm. out. Um, but it's not useful as a primary diagnostic test. It does not have the sensitivity or specificity to be done as a primary test. You need that CTA test. Um, and then we talked about TEE as well. So mm-hmm. it's going to either involve cardiac, uh, I'm sorry, the cardiologist, or you getting certified, right, which right. Uh, is kind of being talked about right now. Uh, as far as the treatment, um, the Esmolol drip, I think, is the primary thing. I remember when we did um, intern in the hot seat and we had a dissection, right. uh, they gave the case presentation. I was like, uh, start the Esmolol drip now. Right. And then, uh, you know, we, we, we went, obviously went on. To the yeah, so case. one of the keys about treating the hypertensive emergency of aortic dissection is lowering the heart rate mm-hmm. as the first move. And then typically there is another move in there, uh, whether that's uh, – so some people will talk about just using labetalol or uh, folks will use um, a beta blocker like Esmolol and then add the nipride, uh, you know, behind that. So the beta blocker is generally the first move because you definitely want to avoid a reflex tachycardia that you see in, in some of the mm-hmm. antihypertensives. Right. So there's two components. There's the actual pressure inside the aorta, and then there's the shear forces. Right. So the shear forces are the number of times that blood is being shoved into that new space created right. by that dissecting component. And then the pressure itself is causing worsening of the dissection that's already there. Exactly. And so would you like 60 punches a minute to the aorta arch, or would you like 120? Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> way to think of it. Exactly. So I'd make sure you just always start off with that Esmolol drip and then move on to your um, your vasodilating agent after that. Sounds good. Uh, so there's two types. There's type A and type B. Um, type A involves the aortic arch, um, so that goes down toward the aortic valve. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, type B is not involving the aortic arch. It is after the arch component, after the, um, the island of something or other isthmus something i don't know i don't know anatomy <laughs> but there's a, there's a little tether there for the, the downside the, right right, the, right the, the descending yeah, yeah. yes yes <laughs> and so 
the a good reason we need to know this is because typically after the arch it will be medical management right if it involves the arch it is surgical management right. and you need to know that before you call your cardiothoracic surgeon Right. So, but it's always fascinated me this concept of medical versus surgical management because I've never met an aortic dissection that didn't need medical management. And I've never met an aortic dissection that I did not engage the services of a thoracic surgeon. So, it's a little overstated that we need to sit around and say, like, oh, this is a patient that needs this operation or that operation. Because when you start to talk to the CT surgeons, they'll do you one better and say, this type of aortic dissection needs a certain type of anesthesia, a certain type of bypass, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So, yeah, it's great. The type A's, you're like, you call a surgeon uh, up and you say, like, this is your baby, but you're still doing medical management mm -hmm. like crazy, mm -hmm. trying to keep Absolutely. things under control. Absolutely. These patients are sick, so they're going to go either to the ICU, the OR, or to interventional radiology. True enough. All right. So, almost done. We got one left. So we're, we're in the... We're in the sea of PetMac. Right, right. So this is... We're almost done. So the last is, of PetMac is cardiac tamponade. This is where there is fluid around the heart that is restricting the ability of the heart to fill with fluid, and therefore it has nothing left to pump forward. Mm -hmm. So it is an obstructive cause of shock. So mm -hmm. we have three obstructive causes of shock in here. We have the cardiac tamponade, tension pneumothorax, and there was another one. P... PE, thank you. <laughs> oh, the most important one. <laughs> uh, awkward. Okay. Anyway, cardiac tamponade. Uh, typically, these patients will be short of breath at rest uh, and, ex and with exertion. They will have had some form of either trauma or they may have some history of cancer. Something has to put fluid into that pericardium. Exactly. Um, I've... I don't know if uh, end-stage renal patients can sometimes sure. have it mm -hmm. from a uremic pericardial yeah. effusion. Yeah, usually goes a little slower, not typically resulting in tamponade, but it okay. can. Okay, so that, that that's always what I've seen is that they've right. never been in tamponade. Right. Anyway, the typical um, board question right. for this is going to be Beck's triad. Nice. So Beck's triad is distant heart sounds, right. jugular venous distension, and hypotension. Those three things together, again, Beck's triad. That's distant heart sounds, right. jugular venous distension, and hypotension. You have to know that. Right. Uh, these patients will also be tachycardic usually and sometimes can have uh, pulses paradoxus. I don't know how you measure pulses paradoxus without an A-line. Well, you have to get yourself a manual blood pressure cuff mm -hmm. and spend a few moments and let the blood pressure go down, let the um, air in the cuff go down slowly so you get to that point where uh, you're seeing a return of the systolic sounds, uh, you know, as, you're, as, the, as the manometer is coming down. Okay. So um, you're right, it's way easier with uh, an A-line and... I would grab your ultrasound instead. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's what I would do. Yeah, so this is this is typically diagnosed with bedside ultrasound. So you can use the sub-xiphoid uh, view to look for the pericardial effusion, first off. Sure. And then second, to look for the right ventricle if it's collapsing. If the walls of the right ventricle are touching each other and you have fluid around the heart, you need to assume it's a tamponade. Yeah. And that person needs emergent intervention, whether it be a pericardiocentesis right. or a pericardial window by surgery. Right. They need help. Right. In terms of other things you could do, again, you can look for the alternans of the effusion on EKG, but again, ultrasound is the main way to go. I think This so, is not yeah. someone you're sending to CT. This is not someone you're sending outside the department. This is someone you're sitting on, you're in the room. Right. Now, it can be tough to make this diagnosis. You have a short of breath patient in front of you, uh, and sometimes, unfortunately, you'll make the diagnosis when you send them for that CAT scan to rule out PE, you're like, yikes, you know. <laughs> gotcha. But when they get back, basically slap that Sono on them and uh, take a good look and start deciding what your next move is. Okay. As far as uh, the treatment is concerned, IV fluids to try and pump up their preloads right. so they can attempt to fill their right ventricle, pericardiocentesis to remove that fluid mm -hmm. best you can, and then consult surgery for a pericardial window to at least relieve that uh, the problem of accumulation. Right. They're either going to the OR or to the ICU. These right. patients are not going to the floor. Yeah. And uh, you do not have to take every drop of fluid out of the you know pericardial area because uh, a little bit of fluid 
30, 40, 50 cc's sometimes is all you need to relieve that tamponade physiology, which is the enemy, you know. Right, right. Um, and uh, you'll get enough time before they either reaccumulate or have another problem. All right, so I think that's pretty much everything we wanted to go over. We could give a, a brief summary. Yeah, so to, to summarize, uh, you know, from the top, let's go back to those two patients, right? All right. 50-year-old guy running on a treadmill, my chest hurts. Yep. Um, you go through your pet mac. You mm -hmm. say to yourself, could it be a PE? Could it be esophageal rupture? Yeah. Maybe a tension pneumo. Did the guy in the treadmill yep. next to him stab him? <laughs> <laughs> But you're thinking with that exertional history, you're probably obviously thinking MI. You might mm -hmm. throw out aortic dissection if right. he's six foot eight and has arms like Batman. Yep. You know. Yep. So again, <laughs> we didn't talk about that, but for aortic dissection, you want to also look for Ehlers-Danlos. Um, what's the one I'm forgetting? That's more common. Marfan. Marfan. Thank right. you. Um, and and things that will predispose you to those things. Um, Coarc of the aorta can sure. also can right, also right, do that right. as well. So, uh, yeah. how about Mary, the 69 year old? So, I would also still be concerned about MI for her because women tend to have fatigue as a component of their MI as right. well. However, again, we don't have a physical exam on this patient. We don't know a lot of things. She could also be a PE. She could be, um, she could be a, a cardiac issue if she has a history of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, ESRD or right. any other esophageal things. rupture from mm -hmm. her vomiting. Right. Uh, she has got epigastric pain. Maybe it's uh, peptic ulcer disease. It could right. be a whole ton of different things. Who would perk out of the two folks here? Hmm. <laughs> Nobody, right? No. Yeah. No. Interesting thought to think about somebody with, um, you know, uh, 50 or 69-year-old. Uh, it's hard to perk them out, right? Right, right. So uh, let's see. For Mary, what else will we throw out there? Doubt she has a tension pneumo, but I've seen patients with COPD develop that type of thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh cancer history she could be the person with tamponade maybe, you know maybe so it's interesting when you uh put out cases like this you think oh that guy probably has an mi oh oh that she probably has an ulcer what have you and you do your pet mac mm -hmm. and you start thinking about all the scary things that are out there yeah and you you get a little diagnosis fixation on scary things right right if there's anything i'm good at it's <laughs> anchoring <laughs> well a skilled EM physician gets anchored on bad things first, and then later, as his you know knowledge base improves, he realizes, okay, yeah, yeah it's yeah. I don't have a, today's not the pet back day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so always for those out there, please always have a broad differential. Don't anchor. Anchoring is yeah. No studies bueno. show that really masterful clinicians. Uh, take their broad differential, and then as the case goes on, they reprioritize it, change the likelihood ratios, the probabilities uh, with new information and what have you. So starting with a broad differential, though, is the key. Mm -hmm. Well, you did a great job, Dan. Thank uh, you. It's fantastic. You, Like I said, you chose the mother of all cardinal presentations. Uh, I do hope um, the students and interns who are starting, who just literally started yesterday, <laughs> uh, will uh, listen to this and... Um, Hopefully not poop their pants. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe just take take back that pet mac uh, yeah. approach and yeah. uh, uh, give yourself uh, a little bit of uh, uh, traction on some of your first cases. All right. All right. Good, good job. All Thank right. you. Talk to you later. Thanks.